Hi, I'm Tom Zalatni, and you're about to listen to episode 274 of Up for Discussion. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know about a few things that are coming up. Um, so this episode includes a really great interview with Lydia Torenberg uh, that goes really deep into some very serious subject matter. And honestly, the whole time we were recording, there was just kind of a really powerful energy to the show, uh, which I'm, I think you will feel while you listen to it. And honestly, the whole time that we were recording, I was like, I don't think I'd feel right to like... <laughs> interrupt this at any point with ads and and kind of you know the the usual high energy stuff um so i thought maybe i'll just do that at the top of the show get it over with and then you'll be able to be fully immersed in what we're talking about once the real show starts um so yeah just a couple of quick announcements and then we'll get into it first up next week is our five-year anniversary episode that's wild (laughs) it is uh Really, really crazy to me to think that we've been doing this for five years. Yeah, just so, so crazy. That is such a large chunk of time. Um, Anyway, it's our five-year anniversary episode, and we want you to be part of it. You can share your favorite Up for Discussion memory with us and have us share it on the show. All you've got to do is send us an audio file telling us who you are, what your favorite memory is, and wishing us a happy fifth birthday. Uh, Please wish us a happy fifth birthday. Our show is very nervous about starting kindergarten in the fall. Yeah, you can send it to us by email at upfordpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you don't want to record yourself, uh, you can also tweet it at us at Down With Talking on Twitter or shoot us an email at upfordpodcast at gmail.com and we'll just read it on the show. We really appreciate your support. And uh, yeah, come celebrate with us next week. The other thing that I want to tell you about before we start the show is our Patreon page. Patreon is, of course, a crowdfunding platform that lets creators like us work directly with our listeners like you to make the best possible content. Um you can head to patreon.com slash up for discussion to find out more, but basically for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us make the show even better, uh, and you'll also get all kinds of sweet perks as our way of saying thanks. This month, all proceeds raised on our Patreon beyond our like operating expenses, so basically everything after the first like 30 bucks, uh, are being donated to Raven Trust and the NDG Food Depot. Please consider pledging your support and helping us help others. Okay, that's enough from me. On with the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 274 of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast where we take your questions and dish out hot treats and tasty goofs. I'm your host, Tom Zalatni, and I'm alone in the studio again today, but of course I'm not alone in your hearts or in your ears. I, I usually say those in the opposite order, but today I feel like the heart is is the important one. Maybe the heart is always the important one. I don't know. Anyway, I'm joined over the phone, I guess technically over Google Hangouts, by my wonderful co-host, Jeremiah. Hello. Nice to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. (laughs) Good. And by a very special guest, Lydia Torenberg is a Cree Métis master's student in anthropology at the University of Victoria with a focus on indigenous audiovisual research methods. How are you doing? Good. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to introduce myself in my language, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, I just said, hi, everybody. How are you doing? It's a really great day. Um, I am Cree Métis, and my name is Lydia. So I just spoke. Um, that was my Cree introduction. Thank you. So yeah, we usually start our show with um, a little bit of you know chatting back and forth, and then also with a land acknowledgement, um, you know, talking about the fact that... Uh, 
all the hosts of our show and most of the guests, to be honest, are settlers. Uh, And um, it, you know, occurred to us a while ago, it would be a good idea to bring some indigenous voices onto the show as often as we can uh, in light of that and to sort of talk about that uh, a little bit more from like from the indigenous perspective. And uh, one of our patrons actually uh, requested that we do an entire episode about it. Um, And so Lydia, I'm really thankful that you uh, were available for this because you are, (laughs) I think, an expert on this based on what you're studying and also have an actual personal, you know, tie to it. Um, And that's kind of a nice combination. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I would want to make sure viewers know I'm not the indigenous perspective by any means. Um, Just one for sure. Yeah, that's it. It's it's tricky, eh? Because even that, like, you know, I I initially was kind of looking around to see if I knew anybody closer to where our studio is specifically. And to give listeners a bit of perspective, uh, we are on opposite sides of the country. So clearly that did not work for me. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, we'll talk about my influence. Lydia is someone that I knew um, as a teenager. So she is speaking from the territory I grew up in, which was Lekwungen territory. Yeah, Lekwungen and Sinchothan territory. Yes, thank you. So before we get into that, I am actually just very curious about what uh, your major means, because uh, <laughs> I, I see the phrase audiovisual research methods, and my brain just goes, I know what all three of those words mean, but I have no idea what that means like together. Can, can <laughs> right. you like, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I'm very sound oriented. I'm a musician. Um, I do like audio editing and I'm really passionate about sound and through my studies at UVic I was introduced to Dr. Alexandrine Boldrio-Fournier and she's a visual anthropologist and so I started to become passionate about film and video as well and um, I found through film I could combine this this love of visual art with sound and as I was doing research about um, audiovisual methods in anthropology which means going into community and making films with community and creating research that's more accessible and arts-based, I started realizing how much it overlapped with my indigenous um, ethics and responsibilities and passions and started to realize that this was a really great connection that indigenous research, um, I think, would be really well, really well portrayed through film, photography, audio recording, um, and so my passion is creating this connection and trying to come up with methods of film and audio recording and photography that are more um, embedded in an indigenous approach. So in my honors research, I started looking at the, the different works of other Cree Métis filmmakers, um, such as Christine Welsh and Gil Cardinal, and looking at how do they make films that's different um, than the Hollywood um, tradition and through that came up with an idea of how to create anthropological films from an indigenous voice and from my cremate aesthetic that's really cool i um yeah i i have never heard of the concept of audiovisual research methods before but it, so it, to me this kind of sounds like almost like documentary work except with more of an eye toward like just kind of capturing the true moments that people live through, I guess, rather than trying to tell any specific narrative. Yeah, and I think part of it is like, you know, as anthropologists, one of the things we do the most is called participant observation. This idea that you participate in a moment with your research participants and you observe while you're doing it. But I really, and usually what you would write would be like a written book or a written thesis. And I what I really enjoy about audiovisual methods is that you're, you're accruing 
your learn your learning is happening as you're creating your film, but then your learning is portrayed to the film. So it's more accessible to other people. So it's easier to watch a film than it is to read a, a academic article with a bunch of words you can't understand. Um, and it's more impactful. It's got a more emotional, it's got a more sensorial kind of um, quality to it that makes it just a more impactful experience. So that, let's say if you were wanting to use audiovisual methods to look into the Witsuit and support um, movements, it's going to be much more visceral and emotional to watch the faces doing the work rather than just reading stories about or reading your impressions of what it was like. Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds like a really cool medium to be uh, to be working in. I'm kind of jealous, honestly. That's uh, that's really neat. Um, so you you mentioned while explaining that um, that you feel like it has a like distinct link to um, your like your indigenous side of things. Um, can can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Like, where does that kind of parallel come in? I think the way that it connects best with my culture is the ethics of listening and storytelling. So um, as a Cree Métis person, we're oral, we have oral um, history as our way of communicating and sharing knowledge. And so one of the best things about audiovisual methods is that you get to look at the, whoever's speaking and listen to their, their laughter, their cadence, um, all the paraverbals that go into telling a story. And so audiovisual methods maintain that connection between storyteller and listener. But there's also a way to embed your ethics into your film. So part of my, um, my honors thesis, which was called Natawata, Searching for um, Cree Métis Approach to Audiovisual Anthropology. In that, I looked at um, a lot of Indigenous filmmakers use a different kind of approach to filmmaking than you do in Western filmmaking. So one of the things they do is they'll often have themselves on the screen. So instead of doing an interview where you are behind the camera and the person you're interviewing is in front of the camera, you'll sit together in front of the camera. And so it's a more connected, reciprocal, um, personal way of interviewing that shows the questions that you ask, which also shows the ethics of the person um, and how they responded. So you're seeing what was inspiring their response. And you can take care of that person if they start to get emotional. Well, you're there with them and you can really walk with them through that moment. So it's, um, mm. it's got a lot of aesthetic connections, but also those ethical connections. I love that. So, so one of the sort of... Um... I want to say values, I guess, that uh, that our network has is this idea that because a podcast is a, a medium that you like put directly into your ears to consume, uh, it it's something that you're kind of becoming vulnerable to when you consume it, right? Um, and so one of the sort of values that we uphold here is this idea that like, okay, well, if people are, you know, opening up their bodies to have us speak to them that way we should honor that by opening up ourselves as well right opening up our words and opening up our like emotional side of things and kind of you know no matter what we're talking about being willing to kind of go deeper into it than that and I think that there is something really really like cool about framing um the idea of an interview being face to face so that like because i wouldn't even even thought about that actually like i i have never i've never thought about it before but i don't really see you know interview settings where we see both people on screen that often right with the exception of maybe like late night talk shows where it's all pretty surface level you don't you don't really get that sort of emotional connection um in the media that uh 
that's produced in sort of the Western world that much. And like, yeah, that's that's really cool. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah, and I have an elder. Um, one of the, I just mentioned her. Her name is Christine Welsh. She's a Métis filmmaker, but she also was an elder in residence and a retired professor at the University of Victoria. And when I was doing my honors research, I had a minute to sit down with her and she said something that was really powerful. She said, never ask somebody to go somewhere that you're not willing to go with them. So if we're going to have conversations that are emotional, if we're going to have conversations that might make you more vulnerable, or if we're going to ask listeners to go somewhere more vulnerable, then we better go there with them. Hmm. Um, and we better be taking them somewhere that we're willing to go as well. And that's, and that was really impactful for me. Um, and so exactly what you're saying is right. It's about how do we take care of the people who are telling our stories. Mm. And um, we also can think about in reality TV, you hear so many times of, oh, I didn't say that, or that was taken out of context. <laughs> but if you have yourself in front of the camera and you have those questions that you ask, people know exactly why you said what you said. And that can be quite telling. Um, Alanisa Bonsalin is a very famous indigenous filmmaker. And there's a really famous interview with the, the head of the Department of Fisheries, and she asks some very pointed questions, and he gets quite visibly upset. And you can really see it's very impactful to see her her questions and how powerfully and, and how emotionally he responds to those questions. And so it actually gives you a greater context to understand and appreciate that interview. To I guess to sort of like be vulnerable myself, I'm I'm really kind of like I'm kind of floored by that. That's that's such a uh, wow. That, <laughs> that's just very profound, and I'm kind of uh, I'm a little bit speechless. Jeremiah, say thanks. <laughs> I'm also speechless. I'm kind of just sitting there absorbing it all. Yeah, it's really nice to hear academic speech that also connects that bridge culturally and speaks to an academia that isn't just like white and Western. Yeah, and I'm definitely very inspired to know that you and your peers are doing that work. It's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. I really recommend people looking at the Indigenous Corners of the National Film Board of Canada. It's really impressive work, and I've been very inspired by that um, and hoping to bridge the academic side of it. Um, and I'm really inspired by these amazing Indigenous scholars like Margaret Kovach um, and Kathleen Absalon. I'm very passionate about those women. And I'm really passionate about those um, filmmakers like Christine Welsh and um, uh, Elenisa Bomsawen. And so it's such a pleasure to be able to hopefully create a bridge between those worlds that I'm so passionate about. I, uh, I just can't stop thinking about like, what would the media that we consume on a large scale look like if everybody was actually producing their content that way? If everybody was doing it in a way where it's like, as like bringing bringing your internal stuff to the surface as much as possible making it really like i guess clear what your intentions are while you're asking the questions you're asking and like being open to the whole you know wide range of human emotions that can come up during during an interview right like letting people just you know pour themselves out in in kind of unfiltered ways and and seeing that sort of yeah just that sort of connectedness that that would create that's such a that's such a, a an interesting like brain challenge i guess to to try and imagine well you're right and and the thing that's interesting about it as well is that one of the reasons that we see a lot of our indigenous filmmakers in our work 
and a lot of the reason that we see our indigenous academics centering themselves in their research is because most indigenous um, content creators do work that's important to them. They do work that means something to them and connects to them. So it, it follows that we would have ourselves in our research. And so it's another uh, tenet of indigenous research methods that I've been learning about is this idea that we mostly do research that means something to us. And so it makes sense for us to, to put ourselves into it. And so to do research about our families or to have someone on your podcast that you met from high school, that's a very indigenous way of doing things is to rely on those relationships that you have. I really like that. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm like, I, I I feel like I don't have so much to say for once because I'm just like <laughs> taking it in. I really, uh, I really appreciate those answers. That's, uh, that's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So we have a uh, featured Patreon question today uh, that came in a little while ago from our patron, Carlea. Uh, Carlea, I do want to give a quick shout out to Carlea because um, since the beginning of the pandemic, Carlea has been like kind of busting her ass making masks for people uh, and like doing contactless drop off and like mailing them to people. Uh, and just I, I think that is very cool and like a thing that I want to commend her for so thank you Carlea for doing your part to uh to keep people safe during all of this uh and Carlea's question is um let me see if I can find the original wording of it I cannot uh (laughs) Carlea's question paraphrased was you guys talk a lot about uh how where you record is situated on stolen land can you go into a little bit more detail about that can you talk about what you mean when you talk about living on stolen land so so when we got this question, I was kind of like, hmm, I want to make sure that we do this in a way that, like, is not just a bunch of settlers talking about it, because, like, that sort of feels a little tone deaf to the, you know, nature of the question. And at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I thought as much about it for myself as possible leading up to it, right? Because I also, you know think that as settlers it's and and this is you know what we say most episodes like we uh, as settlers it's important that we like wrestle with these things and think about these things so my I, I guess maybe I'll start with like my understanding of what that means and then if you want to like I, I don't know the best way to do this maybe I'll say what I think about this and then Jeremiah if you want to sort of add and then Lydia if you want to kind of like tie it together does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Um, so so for me, as someone who only started kind of knowing anything about this within the past like year and a half and really reflecting on it intentionally over the past year, what it means to me is a lot of the time in, you know, air quotes history, um, people decide to go and try and find new spaces for themselves and spoilers most of the time that ends up meaning kicking out the people who already live there which is shitty and like (laughs) something that should not happen uh, and doesn't happen as much as directly anymore because the world has kind of settled and then you know this was this was then and this is now but the effects of that are all still very much at play and there's a lot of things still going on and a lot of ways that those boundaries are still being pushed and people are still being pushed out of places where they live and like that sucks um and i think as a person who like i was born here 
to you know parents who were from who were born here but with grandparents who immigrated from Hungary for me it's it's this very real thing of like i i know that i personally am not responsible for you know being part of a colonialist system but i also know that i am part of a colonialist system and like have definitely benefited from that over the years and there's this tension of like okay I don't know that I would, you know, throw that away, right? Like, I don't know, like, I I think that I take it for granted a lot that I had it, like, moderately easy. And granted, like, I grew up fairly poor and queer and repressed, and, like, I didn't have it, like, the easiest. But there's certainly, I'm certainly speaking from a position of privilege on this, and, like, that is just a, a tension that I hold in myself constantly of, like, if I want to be the like best ally that I possibly can be the like the ultimate expression of that would be to move to Hungary and I don't want to move to Hungary because like I well for a lot of reasons um anyway all of this to say my sort of like feeling at this point is like if if as a settler I can't for whatever reason, whether, you know, whether it's because logistically it would be difficult or because my comfort level is not there. If I can't leave the place that I am, that I, you know, recognize I'm not entitled to, then how do I, as a person who is staying here, continue to make efforts to reconcile that, you know? And and for me, that means having conversations like this publicly, getting more people thinking about it, you know, engaging politically with these conversations when they come up in the sort of larger scale of things, right? Electing politicians who, you know, have this on their radar as something that is important to address and deal with. And like, you know, donating to charities that help indigenous people who have been displaced because of this kind of thing. And like, yeah, I don't know. There's, it is to to be like vulnerable and real for a minute. Really, a difficult question, you know. Um. So so, Carla, as far as I, uh, as far as my answer to this, um, when I say I live on stolen land, I say it with a heavy heart and with an eye toward what can I, as a person, do with the resources I have minimal that they may be and the platform that I have also kind of minimal as it may be to um, make a difference through that. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, I would argue with you about moving away because I think, you know, if we keep having the people who understand the struggle leave, then we'll be left with the people who don't. So I think there's a real power in staying Mm. and using that voice to support that fight. Yeah, that's that's true. I uh yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> that Yeah. That, so stay and stay and be and be uh fortified. Stay and be part of it. Yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah, I think kind of running off that an important thing to remember is like hating yourself and like just submerging yourself in white guilt is not going to help anyone or settler guilt if you're a POC settler. Like, just feeling bad about the fact that you're here doesn't make a difference. Right. And it's not helping one. So stop the pity party and get on with it. In terms of the question Carlea asked, which I believe when you first sent it to me was just her asking, 
why do we call it stolen land or why do we say we live on stolen land? Mm-hmm. Um, as the one who kind of wrote the first draft of the land acknowledgement for this show, I guess I'll speak to that. Um, I use the term stolen land when I do land acknowledgements as a harsh reminder to myself. I've heard a lot of land acknowledgements. I've heard them done a lot of ways. I've heard it phrased a lot of ways. I've heard people kind of dancing around this concept of like, we were here without being invited. I've heard people say, oh, we're uninvited guests or we're on the traditional territories of so-and-so. And I just, to me, to like force myself to really face it and reckon with it, I, I say it like it is, it's stolen land. This land was taken from the nations that already lived here violently, prejudicely, with ill intent. And that's how we came to live in this country. That's how we came to be on these lands. And we have to acknowledge that. Be- being a little harsh with myself in-, in that regard pushes me to ask myself, what can I do to surrender as much of my privilege as is possible? And like you said, Tom, that's uncomfortable. Like, privilege is comfortable. That's why we build it for ourselves. We want to live a privileged life. But that doesn't benefit anyone other than ourselves. And that's not the impact I want to have on the world. That's not the way I want to involve myself in community. Hmm. Um, Sorry, lost my train of thought there a little bit. No, that's okay. I think you're on the right track, though. I think this idea of being hard with yourself is important because you're living in a context where the government won't be hard on you for you. Yeah. Yeah. Once you start asking yourself, how do I surrender my privilege? How do I use my privilege to give material, social gain to people who don't have that same privilege? It also allows you to start thinking of the world in different ways and thinking of your social connections and your networks in different ways. And instead of being like, oh, which politicians should I elect or which MP should I send a letter to, which is all important work you should be doing, you can also ask yourself, outside of the political sphere, outside of the theoretical debate of the rights of the people whose land this is, how do I like viscerally, hands-on, involve myself in the fight and the struggle in that allyship and using a word as visceral as stolen as like remo- keeping that concept of theft in my head helps me think in like the same kind of yeah helps me focus on those like tangible aspects I can be doing yeah rather than just that like oh sitting in my room on my computer how can I help it's like where do I need to go where do I need to put my body where do I need to put my heart when I'm doing this work who mm-hmm. Wisdom should I be looking to? Whose voice should I be listening to? Who should I be lifting up? And that's kind of how I approach it. That was a little meandering, but thanks for sticking with me through that. <laughs> I think that I think that was really good, though. Yeah, yeah. I think framing it in terms of like using that language to, and actually, I think this maybe comes like ties in a little bit to what Lydia was talking about earlier when you when you use language that when you use language like stolen land, it does have an emotional evocation to it, right? And yeah. and that one makes it more clear what you're saying, right? Because it's, it, you know, like you were saying before, people dance around it and, and laying it out really clear like that is is a good way of kind of removing any doubt, right? Yeah. And then two, it does evoke an emotion in people because even even people who have never been stolen from personally 
can look at the word stolen and go like, okay, well, hang on. Like, that's not cool. People shouldn't steal things. <laughs> and yeah, it, it makes it personal, you know? I just had another kind of thought. Also, that language for me keeps it rooted in the present. Like, there is ongoing land theft happening. There is right. ongoing violation of treaty rights and government agreements. And when people frame land acknowledgments as like acknowledging something that used to be, it's kind of like, oh, we talked about it and now we can move on. Whereas when your land acknowledgement speaks to the present tense and it speaks to ongoing theft and ongoing violations, it reminds you that there is work to be done now, not just to rectify the mistakes of the past, but to stop what's being done now and to move away from systems that allow that. So that's the other reason I see it that way. I think that that makes a lot of sense and like is is something that I think about when we do this on a weekly basis because like do, so so this is kind of a weird kind of um like tie-in but it's it's where my brain's going so I'm going to follow it. Um I used to, you know, be a pretty like church-going person and the thing that I found I I guess missed about church the most when I left was having a weekly um I guess just reminder to reflect, you know. There there was at least at the church that I went to part of the service every week was a sort of period of like okay, here's a thing that we say every week. Uh and the the wording changes and the sort of message around it changes, but there's always this period of okay, now let's think about this for a minute and let's reflect on this and let's kind of remind ourselves of the context that we're in. And that I think, you know, I I try week to week to kind of like contextualize our land acknowledgement a little bit to whatever like I am thinking about that week as I am doing it. And part of that is to remind myself, like you said, this is an ongoing thing. Um, and part of it is to, I think, like, it's it's the same as that sort of thing that I was saying with the church where, like, having having a a regular reminder to check in with yourself to check in with the people around you to check in with the greater community and what's going on is i think really important practice for people and i think especially for me because i can get really bogged down in like the day-to-day and having this like you know, weekly reminder to stop and go, okay, what, like, let me kind of recontextualize myself, you know? Yeah, and I hope it gives our listeners that same kind of weekly opportunity. Yeah. Cool, let's get out of the way and let an Indigenous voice be heard. Yes. <laughs> um, You know, I was practicing this with my partner. I read the question ahead of time and went, gee, like, that's a big question. How do I want to answer this? And we went for a big long walk so that I could practice in my head what I want to say. And you know what? I think I just want to give you a history lesson, if that's okay. Yes, please. Absolutely. Yeah. So when the settlers came, they came to the East Coast here. And a lot of the nations um, really accepted and were very gracious and were like, yes, like, please come, um, you know, make your living, stay here. But the understanding was, like, that we, this is still Indigenous land, this is still our nations, but like, yes, you're welcome to share with us, we have an abundance and, and everything's okay. 
But during this time back in Europe, the monarchs were legislating rules without ever having been here. And one of the things that they did as an anthropologist, I feel very um, responsible for this. Um, anthropology was invented by the settlers who came here and needed a way to study the people who lived here. And they said things like, you know, because there is no written language that we can see, there's no understanding of law, therefore there's no ownership. There's no churches, therefore there's no religion, therefore you're godless heathens. There's no um, legal house, therefore you don't have legal order. There's no governmental building, therefore you don't have governmental uh, structures. And so they basically created this idea that indigenous people were underdeveloped primitive people and therefore couldn't conceptualize of ownership. Therefore, the land was terra nullius. There was nothing on the land. It was empty land. So all of these policies are being made overseas. Meanwhile, the indigenous people are trying to work with the settlers and then have a good relationship. But we start having um, legislation that gives ownership and creates this land as a colony without the knowledge of the indigenous people. And then we have forced relocation. Then we're starting to move indigenous people off their land and legislate ownership to, for those settlers. Then we move into um, this idea of reservation and so creating areas that the indigenous people had to live, which were frequently really undesirable places with difficult soil for farming or far away from resources like the water. And then it actually became illegal for indigenous people to leave those reservations without the express written consent or approval of the Indian agent. So first again, it was, let's live together. Then it was, oh, can you please move over there? And then it was, okay, now you have to stay here. And if you leave, we'll arrest you and put you in jail. So it very quickly went from let's work together. And a lot of those treaties that we had, indigenous people fundamentally saw the treaties as a different sort of ball game. Treaties meant the beginning of a relationship, the beginning of working together and having um, conversation and dialogue. And the European people saw it as a termination of a relationship. Okay, we've come to an agreement, this is now the agreement. Mm. So when we talk about treaty responsibilities, part of it is that we have a, a treaty responsibility to stay at, in contact and stay in conversation. But a lot of these, the, the way that Canada looks at these treaties is that, no, that was a termination or extinguish of, uh, extinguishment of rights and claim to land. Um, so I'm going to be recommending a few films during this time. So one of them is Alanis Obonsoin's Incident at Restigouche, and that's a really great example. Um, where in their treaty with the Mi'kmaq, there is a, a clause in the treaty that says that they will be allowed to fish and hunt to uh, whatever extent they need to, to feed their families, and they're welcome to share any, or sell any surplus that they have, and that should never be impeded. And the government went, yeah, well, that's not very convenient for us, so we're going to stop doing that, and we're going to not let you do that anymore. So this is in the 1980s, where they just decided to start arresting people and cutting their nets and taking away their ability to hunt and fish, um, when it was in, ensconced in that treaty that they should have that right. Um, and as the settlers moved west, they just altogether stopped making these treaties. So there were treaties where there were clauses hidden in the treaties that the indigenous people didn't know about because they couldn't write, read English. They had um, treaties and agreements that they gave rights and then just never followed through. And by the time they got to British Columbia, they basically just stopped doing treaties altogether. 
And so that's why in British Columbia, we say a lot unceded territory. We say um, there's no treaties over here. So there was never an agreement about land use. So when we talk about stolen land, we mean literally, legally stolen land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you weren't allowed to leave your reservations, this was a way of making sure that people couldn't, couldn't then fight back and couldn't take land back. And it actually became um, a policy that if you were to leave your reservation and want to join the army, or if you wanted to go to the university, or if a woman married a white man, then they would lose their status. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't be allowed to go back on reserve. You wouldn't be allowed to be with your community in the same way. And so this was another method of making sure anybody who wanted to get educated or anybody who wanted to um, kind of lift their people up would be removed from their community. So this is um, a, a policy of assimilation. It's trying to get the indigenous people um, to, to lose their rights, to lose their title, um, and to lose their dis- distinct identity. So this is why we call it cultural genocide. And we had Indian residential schools where we had youth taken from their parents, and if their parents didn't allow it, they would go to jail. And these students were treated very poorly. They weren't allowed to use their language. Um, and so when they would return home from these um, awful institutions, they couldn't speak to their parents anymore. They couldn't understand their families. And the actual written in the documents of the government was to kill the Indian and the child and to continue until there are no more Indians left on the land. So this was actually written, and if you want to, you can Google it and you will find handwritten documents by people like John A. Macdonald, our first prime minister, with their express unhidden um, agenda of cultural genocide. Um, and then after residential schools, we had the 60s scoop where, okay, if we can't send them to institutions, we'll take these children and adopt them out into white families far away from their home communities. And after that, we don't have the 60s scoop anymore, but still um, the majority of, of youth in child, uh, in um, in foster care are indigenous as well. And so they're grossly over um, represented in both the foster care system and within the criminal system. So this is a systematic legacy of Canada. Since before Canada was even born, it has been built on deceit, violence, and a gross disregard for humanity. So when we talk about stolen lands, we mean like not only burglarized, if you will, but imagine moving into someone's home taking away all of their things, putting them out, and then saying that you were always there and that you love the Indigenous people and putting, you know, feathers on the $5 bill and calling it a day, parading us out on the Olympics, but not wanting to actually do anything to protect those people. Um, And so I would love to recommend another film here. It's Kamisatake, 170 Years of Resistance. And this is about the Oka crisis that happened. in the 90s, which was an incredible um, fight for land title. And most of the people um, in my age group around their 20s have never heard of this incident before. And so the Wet'suwet'en um, uh, support demonstrations that are happening and the conflicts that are happening, it's, it's not new, it's nothing new. These incidences have been happening since Canada was founded. and. Um, I think it's so important for people to educate themselves because they're not going to get that education in high school. They're not going to get that education unless they actively seek it in university. And they're certainly not going to get it by the government. It's it's like hitting me that this this kind of more than just theft, it also sounds like kind of federally mandated gaslighting. Absolutely. 
Jeez. Yeah, it's dark and it's and it's deeper and longer and more committed than than we know of, and um, it takes an active um, and concerted effort to go find that education because it won't be given to you um, if you don't look for it. Yeah, I mean, I like you know, I I grew up here in in Quebec, going to high school, and like definitely this is nowhere near the curriculum right like the the when when you first started telling us the history uh the first three or four sentences were all things that were definitely in the history book and then by like the fifth sentence it was veering off in a much more serious direction than anything that we ever learned and like i think that um, so so a friend of the show, Rob Green, is a history teacher at my old high school, actually, and he um, has kind of been very vocal about how the curriculum needs to change to reflect the truth, right? Um, and I, just in conversations with him over the years, have seen him get more and more frustrated at how that's just not changing still. And like, yeah, it's 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 disheartening. <laughs> Right. And it took, you know, my partner and I went for this walk and it was about a 45 minute walk of him just listening and me just saying like every, everything that I know. And, and so this was me giving you an abridged version. The atrocities just continue and they just, they just become more and more obvious of what the government was trying to do. And so, you know, I was so excited when John Horgan was elected here in BC. I live on the traditional territory of the Hussainich, um, Lekwungen, and the Lekwungen-speaking people, the song he's in Esquimalt. And I was just so excited to have John Horgan. And, you know, I was, like, not super excited to have liberals have one federally, but was still, like, you know, this is a great move toward um, what my values are. And immediately, with the pipeline um, situation, it's just immediately gone down the drain. And and to sit there and think that I've been voting NDP for so long and, and here they are finally in power and they're letting me down. So it's difficult to feel like participating in our um, democracy and a lot of Indigenous people choose not to because it just there's, it's, there's no way to find a representation or a way of participating that doesn't reinforce these colonial powers. Yeah, that's, that's really, um, it's really sobering. <laughs> To realize that even the the parties that are claiming to be, you know, I guess progressive on this stuff are are still perpetuating a system that that perpetuates this. Right. And so when I think about your viewer thinking about stolen lands, even when there are treaties, it's just the treaties haven't been respected. The treaties also needed need to be readapted and revisited. You know, they can't be the same since the beginning and and so stolen land is not just about the events but it's also about the actual policies of our government and so Canada's 150th celebration was hilarious to me because I've been working with the Couch and First Nation um, on one of their beautiful cultural sites called Yeyemnets and that's a over 2,000 year old cultural site where there's archaeological evidence of um, structures and farming and and activity more than older than the pyramids up here on Vancouver Island and Canada's over here <laughs> celebrating 150 years we can celebrate over 2,000 years of living here wow just just wow yeah mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm noticing I'm noticing that we are getting close to seven. Um, so I do want to give you uh, the chance if there's any if there's anything else you think you definitely want to hit on before we uh, before we wrap up. Um, go for it. Um, I guess just as a filmmaker and um, uh, as a audiovisual researcher, I, it's hard for me to ask you to go read uh, Decolonizing Methodologies by Margaret Kovach or uh, Decolonizing Methodologies by Linda Tawaihi Smith. But it's easier for me to ask you to go watch free films. Um, so the National Film Board of Canada is really an excellent resource. And like I said, Alanisa Bonsawin, Gil Cardinal, Christine Welsh, they're excellent filmmakers. And you're going to find stories of Canada that I promise you've never heard before. And in a really beautiful way where you're getting to listen to the actual people who were there, the actual Indigenous voices who lived it. Um, and so it's a much easier way to educate yourself but also I think a more powerful way because you're having that emotional, vulnerable, visceral experience. So I just can't recommend that enough. And I'd love to leave a list of some films um, for you to put in the description of this podcast because I just think there's so much learning to be done and it's, it is difficult to ask you to spend all those hours doing paper research. So let me give you some places to start. Cool. Yeah, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll definitely include a list in the, uh, in the description of the episode of... Uh... Uh, films for people to check out i uh i i really appreciate one i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this and like i i recognize that you know this cannot have been an easy conversation for you because it speaks to like generational trauma and that is never easy uh so i really want to thank you like profoundly for doing this with us um um and and two i want to thank you for um the history lesson one, obviously, and then two, the the sort of cultural exchange of this idea that something that is audio and visual is more significant than something that is written down, I think is is really it's a really beautiful idea and it's it resonates with me in a way that I hadn't thought about until you said it. But as soon as you said it, I was like, yes. Yes, that's true. Uh, and so I really, I really appreciate you. Uh, I was going to say dropping by to, to talk to us, but, you know, we're in a quarantine, so phoning in to talk to us about that. Yeah, uh, I'm very grateful to you all. So thank you very much for having me. It's a lot of pressure um, to be a singular voice. And I do want to just express that this is my own teachings and my own perspectives. Um, and it doesn't reflect everybody, but... Um, if you want to use any of the the stuff that you've learned from here, you can use my name, and so that's an ethics that if I screw up, you use my names, others are going to know it's me, and they're going to come find me. <laughs> so, as part of my ethics, please do cite me, but do know that this is just one perspective, and and I'm responsible for that perspective. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's an important thing that I think we all need to do is be more willing to attach our name to our work and our statements. So that we can really stand behind what we're doing and saying. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest reasons that we like we introduce ourselves and self-locate. So one not one thing we do is territory acknowledgements, but we also in Indigenous academia do self-locations, and that's kind of like a self-territory acknowledgement. And, and part of the reason we do that is so that if we screw up, <laughs> we are a hundred percent accountable for that. Hundred percent accountable. <laughs> I like the the spirit of vulnerability and accountability. Mm-hmm. I think those are those are both things that keep us grounded and and keep us thinking about more than just ourselves you know well well, thank you so much Lydia this was uh this was really great thank you so much for having me
And thank you, Jeremiah, for uh, co-hosting this one with me. It's always good to have you. No worries. Um, And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please uh, share it around um, with people who you think will also benefit from it. Um, Everyone will benefit from it. Share it with everyone. Yeah, fair point. Um, Yeah, share the episode uh, on, you know, social media, share it directly with a friend. Um, Just help to get these ideas out there uh, because this is an important conversation and more people should be having it and hearing it. Um, Is that your child screaming? It is. I think it's my child screaming and possibly also my microwave. (laughs) So so I might just uh, blitz through the rest of this outro real quick. Um, You can also support us uh, by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. uh, And you can follow us on social media at Down With Talking and like our page on Facebook. Does anyone have anything to plug? Bearing in mind this comes out on the 25th. No, I don't do enough. Cool. Uh, so the, the main plug is uh, check the description of this episode for uh, a bunch of stuff that you should check out, um, especially a bunch of films from the uh, National Film Board uh, that will hopefully be uh, hopefully be educational and uh, enlightening for you. Um, the only other thing I want to plug is that uh, next week's episode is our five-year anniversary, uh, which is crazy and exciting and... We're going to get a bunch of guests for it, phoning in previous hosts, past guests, sending in messages, et cetera, et cetera. I think it will be a very good time. So uh, tune in for that next week. It will uh, it'll be nice to sort of celebrate our show being old enough to go to kindergarten, I guess. Hey, very fun. <laughs> um, special thanks to the Honeythorns for letting us use their song Crack Apart as our theme music. You can find all their music for sale at thehoneythorns.bandcamp.com. And the show is produced and edited by me, Tom Zalat, and I for the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Lydia, thank you again. This was uh, really fantastic. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. Dungeons, Dragons, Canada, the Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation, Angels, Demons, Squirrels, Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, Plains, Sewers, Lavender, Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast, right here on the Upford Network. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gays in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast. <laughs>